All right, here we are back again, finally. This is Didactic Mind, episode 98. Believe it or not, we're up to 98 episodes, getting on to the grand century, actually, uh, amazingly enough. So, welcome everyone. This is your host, Didact, and this is Didactic Mind, episode 98, The Mirror War. A very warm welcome to all of my Podbean subscribers and listeners. A very warm welcome to everybody from the site who's tuning in. Uh, if you have not already subscribed to my Telegram channel, make sure you do that. The link is in the description box. It's very useful. You'll get quite a lot of updates every day. I mean, I basically just send over links pretty much whenever I can uh, of news items and things that I find noteworthy, particularly about the Banderistan War, as I have taken to calling the war in Ukraine, and you'll get a lot of very useful information that you just won't get from mainstream sources, which will tell you just how badly the mainstream media has got it wrong about the Banderistanis and about the war being waged in Ukraine right now. Uh, I also wanted to point out that there is a new VPN subscription affiliate link in the description box. So that is for Atlas VPN. I'm very proud to partner with them uh, for affiliate links and uh, VPN services. So if you're interested in getting a really good VPN, I very much recommend you take a look at Atlas VPN themselves. They have an excellent service. They're run by the same company, the same sort of parent company that runs NordVPN, uh, but they're a little bit cheaper in terms of uh, price point, actually quite a bit cheaper. So you now have a, a set of choices, you know, that of VPNs that I endorse. I recommend Atlas VPN, Goose VPN, and especially Surfshark. I mean, I personally think Surfshark is the best VPN out there. I'm not saying this based on commissions. I'm saying this based on like the actual value of the VPN. I'm just trying to give you an objective opinion. Personally, I think of the three, Surfshark has the most features. But if you're just interested in something simple, get yourself Atlas VPN or Goose. Uh, either of those will work well, and I very much recommend Atlas VPN because they've got great customer service and great quality products. So give them a look. The link is in the description box. As for the Telegram updates themselves, uh, make sure you check back because the it's a private link. You can't just be invited by anybody. You have to click on the link itself to join the Telegram channel. And actually, we've gotten some good conversation going between various readers of the site. Uh, Techie Dude is there, uh, a couple of others who are uh, regular commenters of the site show up there quite a lot. Uh, RW shows up, WB shows up, and uh, we've got some really cool people commenting on various things that we have um, showing up in the news feeds. And it's just a good community. It's a great way to get exposure to a side of things that you won't see in everyday life. I forward a lot of links and a lot of videos from other channels in English and translated from Russian. So you get uh, kind of a, a full flavor of things. I mean, obviously you get my personal take on things quite a lot, but it is a very, very uh, good community. And I'm really pleased that the Telegram channel has taken off the way it has. Now, Coming to the topic of today's monologue or discussion, whichever one you prefer, the mirror war. The thing is, everything that you're seeing right now in the real world 
is really a reflection of something going on in the spiritual realm. And it's hard for us to process and understand and fathom the ways that things have gone spectacularly wrong in the physical world without understanding the nature of the spiritual realm. And until and unless you start looking at things with spiritual eyes, as Christians are supposed to do, and most of us unfortunately don't do because we've got our heads too far up our butts, if we don't do that, we can't understand why these things are happening the way that they are. It's a huge problem for us. It's a huge blind spot for us as Christians and as men in general. We just, we don't think through these things the way we should. Now, if you look at the Banderistan War and you try to understand it through just a secular lens and purely through the lens of geopolitics, of a power struggle, of, um, of just overall kind of power politics, if you will, of economic, political, military contention, it sort of makes sense. And I'll be the first to give you the political side of things and try to unpack it that way. But until and unless you start looking at it through a spiritual lens, certain aspects of this war just will not make sense. One of those aspects is the vitriol, the hatred, the extraordinary level of anger and disgust directed towards Russians. Now, I'm obviously quite biased on this subject. I have lived in Russia. I speak a little bit of Russian, not well. My Russian-speaking listeners, whoever they are, you know, out there, if I, I know that this podcast reaches a couple of people in Russia once every, you know, three months, basically. Uh, I don't you can see that I mean my view on things is very much pro-Russian because again, I know people in Russia. I understand their culture. I've lived there. I've interacted with Russian families and Russian parents and children and people, you know, grandparents and just average everyday office workers. The level of anger and hatred directed towards them is genuinely shocking. And you'll see it. I mean, I, I pop up on LinkedIn all the time under my real name and, uh, you will see in my, well, I will see in my LinkedIn feed. I mean, for instance, just today I saw something that was liked by somebody that I know who is of Ukrainian background, who's originally from around Lvov, or as he would say, Lviv. Um, and he moved to the States when he was young. He's still got a, a pretty strong Ukrainian accent, but obviously he's very anti-Russian. And he posted something, He uh, his feed had a liked comment from, it was quite a long comment, from some woman who basically said, there is no such thing as Russian culture and you need to stop pretending there is one. And just listed this long, huge list of atrocities that Russians have committed in the last 100, 150 years. And I was like, well, okay, fair enough. I mean, you can't really get away from the fact that these things happen. The Soviets did, you know, rape and murder quite a lot of people when they came in. And they did brutally suppress um, a number of cultures and, and peoples while they were in power in Europe. And they did do all sorts of horrible, terrible, nasty things. That's absolutely true. You can't get away from these facts. Okay, the Russians did these things. The Russians did uh, implement policies during the Soviet Union that led to the enslavement and the destruction and the 
rape and the pillage and the murder of cultures and peoples and tribes and villages and entire nations. All of that is true. You can't get away from these things. But who, why do people still blame Russians today for things that their ancestors did a hundred years ago? I mean, the Golodomor, for instance, is a great example. The Golodomor or the Great Hunger wasn't even started by the Russians. It was started by a Georgian by the name of Yosef Yossarionovich Jugashvili. You and I know him better as Yosef Stalin. Why did that happen? Because in 1920, well, okay, so you have to go back in history a little bit, but essentially after the Russian Revolution, not the first one, not the um, earlier Russian Revolution, which deposed the Tsar, the later Bolshevik Revolution in what we would call today the uh, November 1917, because we use a uh, Gregorian, uh, Gregorian? Yeah, Gregorian calendar, and they still stick to the Julian calendar, whatever, I, some, some distinction between the two. But anyway, um, they, they recognize it as the October Revolution is what I'm talking about, right? So their revolution took place. Uh, they became a bunch of communists, obviously. And uh, the earlier revolution, which actually happened way back when in sort of um, in, in uh, the earlier part of the year, sort of March, April time, that is the bit that's forgotten the history. That's when the um, very different group of, of people took over power and deposed the Tsar. And then the Bolsheviks came into power later on. So after that revolution took place, a number of uh, Tsarist territories broke away from the old Russian Empire. And one of them was Ukraine. Ukraine sought independence. And during the Russian Civil War, which is a largely but not completely forgotten episode of history, uh, which took place sort of 1919 to 1922, thereabouts. I may have the dates somewhat wrong. And in 1918, you could argue, okay, fine. But basically those four years or thereabouts where Russia was just racked by horrific brutality on both sides, on uh, both the whites and the reds, um, fought just a vicious, vicious civil war. Ukraine, its independence was snuffed out and it became essentially came under the control of the communists and created its own Ukrainian SSR. And that SSR has existed as the territory of Ukraine pretty much ever since. Now, Ukraine, as I've said repeatedly, and I will continue to maintain, is essentially just a Frankenstein's monster of different bits and pieces of other countries stitched together into one very ugly-looking kind of not very efficient, badly managed, very corrupt, quote-unquote, country. It's not a country. It's just a collection of bits, unfortunately. It, you know, Ukrainians will react very violently when I say that because they do have their own language. Well, that's true, but it's really spoken only west of the Dnieper. East of the Dnieper, it's mostly um, Russian that's spoken. And if you listen to the Ukrainian, uh, or sorry, the Russian spoken in that belt and in the cities around Ukraine. So Belgorod, um, what else? Uh, Rostov, uh, what's the other one? Uh, there are a few of them. Uh, Voronezh is one of them, of course. If you go to those cities and you listen to the way that people speak Russian, you realize that they speak with a Ukrainian accent. And if you, if your ear is trained to listen to good Russian the way that mine is, then you can tell the difference almost instantly. But the thing is that back then, 
during that revolution, you know, Ukraine was created out of something, um, it, out of various somethings. And in the process, uh, some very, very ugly sort of nasty, virulent sentiments began to fester in Ukraine. And when you get, you fast forward about 20 years into the future, you'll come across an episode in history called the Babi Yar Massacre. Now, go back to what that lady that I referenced earlier in that LinkedIn post was talking about. You know, she was saying there's no Russian culture. It's all blood-soaked brutality, ugliness, nastiness, horror, and evil. Okay. Um, look at what the Ukrainians have done. Look at the Babi Yar Massacre. Go look it up someday. The Babi Yar Massacre is, is a truly appalling moment in history. I mean, it's not even a moment. It's actually several months in history. It was a two-day massacre. The initial massacre was for two days. And 34,000, very nearly, Jews were killed in those two days in a little ravine sort of outside of Kiev, what used to be Kiev at the time. Uh, the, the city limits have since sprawled outwards and have subsumed this little ravine. And they dug mass graves. 34,000 people killed in one day. Okay. That's a level of death and devastation that you really haven't seen since the times of the Mongol Empire. I mean, when they basically went in and wiped out the, the Khwarezmid Empire, that's the kind of thing that the Mongols would do. Uh, and then only because the Khwarezmids had really insulted and pissed off uh, good old Genghis Khan. Um, there's a great quote from him uh, from around that time. I am the flail of God. If you had not committed great sins, God would not have sent me to punish you. It's like one of the most bone-chilling, terrifying quotes of all time, and he said it. Uh, good old Jenkins, like I said. Anyway, what happened at Babi Yar over the next four months, Like it defies human understanding. We can't process these kinds of numbers. We know for sure that 90,000 people thereabouts died at Babi Yar over this course of four months. Poles, Ro uh, Romanians, which is to say Romani, uh, Roma, gypsies, uh, Russian prisoners of war, and Jews, lots of Jews, slaughtered by Ukrainians, by Ukrainians. I want to say that very clearly. When the Allies came over and entered um, Ukraine and, and kind of captured this, this whole area, they were shocked to find that the Waffen-SS guards that they captured, they thought they were German, actually spoke fluent Ukrainian. And it wasn't, um, it was, when I say the Allies, I mean the Soviets, the, you know, um, Stalin's troops came in and captured Ukraine. They were genuinely shocked because they thought that these people would all speak German. They didn't. They all spoke fluent Ukrainian, perfect Ukrainian. Why? Well, because the Ukrainians had merged with the Nazis. The, um, the Ukrainians had actually set up their own panzer and SS battalions inside of Ukraine under German command and operated independently as, uh, effectively, you know, uh, Nazi units within a German command structure. Stepan Bandera was a Nazi collaborator. Roman, what's his name? I forget. Of course, I've forgotten his name now. But Stepan Bandera is, is the classic example of that guy who you know, it was virulently anti-Semitic, had this kind of made up, completely ridiculous notion of what Ukraine is. He actually said, um, Ukrainians, 
were like a, a proto-Germanic people and everybody else were sort of subhuman untermenschen type. Uh, very, very... He used very derogatory language for them. He had no patience for Russians. He thought that they were just, you know, Moscals, as, as the, the Ukrainians called them. Moscals were just deserving of immediate death and execution. And uh, he had a deep, deep hatred for, um, for Russians and for Slavic peoples overall, which is hugely ironic because nowadays the Ukrainians claim that they are the original Slavic people, which I don't know how this logic works, but there's something deeply sick within the core of Ukraine, and you're seeing the results today. Now, all of this ties into this wider theme that I'm trying to talk about tonight, about the spiritual aspect of all of this. Remember that Nazism and communism, fascism, all of these isms are really spiritual manifestations or rather physical manifestations of spiritual disease. This goes back all the way to the watchers in the book of Enoch and the Nephilim and the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. It goes that far back. I mean... Genesis chapter 6, the first paragraph or so of that is really heavy. And that's the amazing thing about it. There's so much contained within that one passage of scripture. Uh, if you go look it up, and I, let's look it up now actually, because it's worth checking out. Genesis chapter 6 talks about the corruption on the earth and the events that uh, predated the flood, right? So, what happened? Well, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through to uh, 4. When man began to... Uh, English Standard Version, I'll make that clear. So, if you've got a different translation, well, tough, as far as I'm concerned, ESV or no SV, but anyway. Um, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. You have to take that passage and you also have to put it in kind of some context with the book of Enoch. And there are a lot of Christians who will argue that the book of Enoch is deuterocanonical. It's got all sorts of weird, fanciful stuff in it. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, okay. I'm not going to argue with that. But the, you don't have to interpret it all 100% literally to understand the point that is being made here, which is that the spirit realm manifested itself in the mortal realm. The spirits who were the sons of God were free and are free to choose their own path. And the spirit realm, the spirits themselves, can choose to obey the will of God or disobey it, just as we can. They have free will, just as we do. They cannot create, though, the way that we can. They are, they are very distinct from us in this respect. Now, um, before anybody accuses me of trying to start up my own ministry, let me be very clear. I'm, I'm not qualified to talk about scripture in any way beyond what I've already heard. Okay. So 
If I get something wrong scripturally, I apologize. It's my fault. I'm just saying this is what we understand or I understand based on my reading of the Bible, based on what I've seen in scriptural analysis by much, 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 much more qualified men such as Dr. Michael Heiser, uh, John MacArthur, uh, various, even Catholic um, preachers and priests and minds. I have, I actually do have, believe it or not, I do actually have great respect for Catholic thinkers. Um, not so much the Catholic clergy, not these days. I used to, but not anymore. Um, but, you know, for those of you who are Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant, whatever, I don't identify myself with any of those nom- denominations. I'm just saying this is what the book says, okay? And this is what the verses say based on what a much smarter people than me have pointed out. So, in these situations, man has the capacity to create and to build in a way that the spirit realm does not. But like the spirit realm, or like us, the spirit realm can choose what it wants to do with relation to God's will. See, the thing is, God didn't have to create anything. He didn't need to. God is, as far as we can tell, a perfect, complete being. A perfect, complete being has no need to create anything outside of itself. But God created us and he created the spirit world for the specific purpose of companionship and for, I don't know, for some great plan that would give glory to God somehow. We don't understand that plan. We're just part of it. It is very clear at multiple points throughout the Bible that God operates through a council of his sons, of beings that are vastly more powerful than we are, of archangels and uh, angelic beings of astonishing power, but whose will is absolutely subordinate to God's. And that much is made very, very clear repeatedly throughout the Bible. Um, Now, does that mean that God himself has no need of man? Well, sort of. Um, God certainly doesn't need us to do whatever he wants to accomplish. I mean, if he wanted to vanquish evil, he could do it with a single thought. He wouldn't need us to do anything. But clearly there is a plan at work, and clearly these spiritual beings are part of that plan. And just as clearly, some of those spiritual beings have failed to obey that plan. And they have rebelled, which is why we have, well, it's one of the reasons why we have demons. Um, now, Dr. Mike Heiser's view on the subject, by the way, if you don't know who Dr. Michael Heiser is, go on YouTube and check out his channel. It is some of the most mind-blowing material on biblical exegetics that you will ever see. It's amazing. I mean, he unpacks the Bible by looking at the original Hebrew And he doesn't try to avoid the strange or awkward passages. He's got a book called The Unseen Realm. Fantastic book. I mean, I've, yeah, my, my attention span is not what it used to be, unfortunately, because, well, uh, like most of you, I spend way too much time on devices. But if you read The Unseen Realm, and I'm a few chapters into it, and I should be much, much farther into it, but you read it, you'll realize this is a first rate mind looking at the Bible as it was originally meant to be understood, in the same way the Second Temple Jew would understand it. 
Dr. Michael Heiser is uh, stricken with pancreatic cancer right now. So if you can pray for him, I'd really appreciate it. I know he'd really appreciate it. I've never met him, but this is the kind of man that we need to teach biblically sound doctrine. So the way that he unpacks it, he, he makes sense of it from the point of view of a second temple Jew who would understand exactly what is going on with respect to the Nephilim, the sons of God, the way that demons came into the earth. And what he says about demons is that these are effectively the spirits of dead Nephilim that uh, departed, you know, that, that, that were destroyed during the flood. Those spirits have manifested themselves in our world as demons, which is like mind-boggling if you think about it. I mean, you read, you just, you just listen to that. You're like, what the, what is going on? That doesn't make sense. Read the book. Seriously, read the book or watch his, um, watch his, uh, logos lectures or whatever they're called. Uh, just go to his YouTube channel and watch that. Um, it is amazing. I mean, the way he unpacks it is just incredible. So what we're seeing in all of these isms that have caused so much pain and suffering for so many people for so many centuries is a manifestation of the spirit realm in the material realm. If you look at the philosophical foundations of communism or fascism, which they're really two of the same, they're two branches of the same evil tree. They really are. If you, seriously, I mean, if you look at the, the Communist Manifesto and then you look at uh, uh, Giovanni Gentile's uh, Il Dottrino del Fascismo, uh, did I pronounce that right? I hope so. If you look at those two books side by side, you realize that Il Dottrino del Fascismo is essentially just an offshoot of the Communist Manifesto. And all that Gentile did was to take Marx's idea of class struggle and say, no, 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 class is not the key dividing factor between groups of people. If you really want to introduce struggle, you need to do it between nations. And you need to separate people into different groups and you need to make it very clear that there's an us versus them mentality. That is the core of fascism. If you actually look at the economic programs and the similarities between, you know, the National Socialist Workers' Party of Germany and their sort of 20, 23 point or whatever it was, um, manifesto that they released in the early 1930s, and you compare it with what Karl Marx said in his 10 planks of the Communist Manifesto, and you, you do a, you know, a side by side comparison with them, you'd be astonished. I mean, this is one of the dirty little secrets that you're not taught in school anymore. The two are almost identical. And the reason they're identical is because they're basically from the same tree. The reason this happens is because of that spiritual war going on between the forces of the evil one and the forces of God. Now understand when that God is capable of creation, as so are we. We as his imagers, his we are created in his image. And again, Dr. Heiser unpacks this by saying, instead of looking at it in terms of God looks like us or we look like God, think of it in terms of a function. And we are a functional imager of God. We perform a function similar to what God performs in the, in the heavenly world. Obviously, greatly reduced, but we are here as stewards and caretakers of creation. 
and we are here to create and beautify and um, and build and do things with the time that we have been given. These are things the angels can't do. The angels and the demons can't do these things. They cannot create. That's the key distinction between us and them. But they can influence. And they're very, very good at influencing. Whether it's through dreams or through oppression, in the case of the demonic realm, whether it's through oppression, uh, depression, possession, uh, and what's the other one? Um, infestation or uh, fascination, something like that. Infestation, I think it is. Um, there's a very good video, or there's a very good series of videos by a Catholic, a Catholic exorcist, um, who I respect greatly. Uh, Father Vince, uh, Father Vince, Father Vincent Lampert, I think it is. Um, I, my mind's all over the place, unfortunately. I've just been so stupid busy with this project that, like, I can't even remember things that normally would come to me very quickly. My mind has just been so badly fried. I mean, that's why things have been slow on the site for a while, just because I've, I've, seriously, I was very, very badly burned out. And it took me a while to get up to the point where I could actually do a podcast again. But, um, the Catholic exorcist that I'm talking about, Father Vincent, uh, talks about these three stages of demonic, um, sort of influence on people. Angels influence us as well. They influence us through dreams and through visions and through interactions with the physical world, but they can only go so far. They can't really like take over our bodies and, and do strange things with us. It's, it's not, it's just, it's not, they're not allowed to do that. There are limits to what they can do and those are imposed by God and that is very clear. But Satan can, through his minions, and remember, evil operates through a hive mind. I've talked about this before. And Dr. Heiser has talked about it in much more detail than me, and much better. Um, the evil manifests itself into our world through these three features. Fascination, oppression, and possession. With Satan, all he can do is corrupt. And as that great saying from Tolkien, evil cannot create it can only corrupt what good men have already created, right? Um, that's absolutely true. I mean, that is 100% exactly right. Tolkien was a devout Catholic, a very good Christian, and he wrote from the perspective of a Christian man trying to create a mythology of England. He succeeded brilliantly in his legendarium. He, he said that because he understood the nature of evil, how evil works, why it is so insidious and so dangerous, and where it gets its power from. Evil gets its power from the ability to influence and corrupt, but not to create. That is exactly what we're seeing now. If you look at all of these isms, if you look at what has happened with Ukraine, what has happened with uh, fascism, communism, and so on, it always starts from an idea that seems sensible. Communism seems like a good idea until you start looking at it very carefully and then you realize you could knock it over with a feather. Seriously, the labor theory of value you could demolish in about five minutes using kitchen analogies. It's not difficult. If you want an illustration of how to destroy 
the entire ideological um, intellectual basis of communism, just go look at uh, basically a passage in Starship Troopers, where Major Reed um, uses Kitchen. Uh, no, no, not Major Reed. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dubois. That's it. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dubois is in a history and moral philosophy lecture, and he basically just destroys the entire idea of uh, uh, value, the labor theory of value, completely shreds it in the space of like a paragraph using just kitchen analogies. That's all you need. But it's it sounds tempting. It sounds believable. And it always goes back to the first great lie. You shall be as gods in Genesis chapter 3. It's the same thing every time. It starts with a believable idea and builds and builds and builds lie on top of lie on top of lie like Jenga blocks. All you have to do is pull out one little block and the whole thing collapses. Now, evil understands this. Evil understands that its edifice is very shaky and wobbly, which is why it must attack relentlessly anything that disagrees with it. Now, you understand why communism and communists were so vicious and violent in attacking anyone who disagreed with them. That's exactly what they did. When communists were in power, what did they do? They rounded up people that disagreed with them, threw them in concentration camps, or threw them in gulags in the Russian case, and worked them to death as slave labor. Or they just shot them outright. Or in Stalin's case, what did he do? He needed a scapegoat to blame for the failures of the communist economic system. So he essentially started stealing food from the Ukrainian gulags, the, you know, the landowning class, uh, the, who sort of sat between the, the, the truly, you know, the, the sharecroppers, the truly poor, and um, the, the wealthy business owners. And he demonized them. I mean, he demonized them as saboteurs and wreckers and so on and so forth, and persecuted them throughout the entirety of the Soviet Union. But he also, from Ukraine itself, stole food so that the Russian people wouldn't starve. And in so doing, he introduced the Golodomor, or as the Ukrainians would call it, the Holodomor, right? Look, I'm, I, I speak Russian. As far as I'm concerned, it's Golodomor. Yeah. Um, but f- between 4 and 10 million Ukrainians died of starvation. And that is unfortunately just the beginning of the evil that is manifesting itself today. That is where Ukraine's deep hatred of Russia comes from, or you know, ethnic Ukrainian deep hatred of Russia comes from. The Ukrainians have never forgotten that episode. They have always blamed the Russians for the fact that so many millions of their people died. It was a true holocaust. I mean, genuinely, it was a true holocaust. Um, and it was covered up by the West. I mean, Walter Duranty, may he burn in hell. It was a prostitute among prostitutes. You know, a pure uh, hornalist of the worst order. He covered up those deaths. He, he made it sound like the Soviet Union was this paradise of economic plenty and miracle working and, and just a, an amazing place to be. And he won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting. People knew even back then in the 1930s that he was lying. The New York Times has never once returned his Pulitzer Prize. Never. They've never taken ownership of the lies that their own correspondents spread. This is one of the reasons why, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I don't even try to hide it anymore. As far as I'm concerned, most journalists should just be shot on sight or hanged. I mean, 
we do the world a great service, honestly. It's not just me that thinks so, by the way. There's a, a hilarious clip of a French investigator. She's a, a journalist. She's an investigator on the ground in Ukraine. And she's just like, she lets fly at uh, the people who uh, who employ her. I mean, seriously, she's, she's, she's getting really pissed off at France 24 TV or whatever it was. Um, because she's on the ground in Ukraine. And they're saying, oh, what a tragedy. Oh, my God, how horrible this is. Look at this war. This is awful. And she's like, guys, I did a documentary on Donbass in 2016 where I exposed the true natures of this horror where 15,000 Russians were being killed by Ukrainians. And you're telling me now this is war? And you're telling me that, you know, I have to count up shells on the ground to prove that it's war? I mean, come on, guys. You, you know, this, is, this is ridiculous. I mean, stop calling yourselves journalists. You're not journalists at all. I want to be called an investigator because that's what I'm doing. I'm investigating. I'm not just parroting the line that somebody else gave me. You know, that's, that is, again, a manifestation of that evil that I'm talking about. And the conflict that we're seeing right now in Ukraine, in Banderistan, really is a mirror, a reflection of a much greater spiritual struggle going on between the forces of God the angels on God's side and the devil and his forces on the other side, the, the forces of evil, the forces of Satan. Now, if you look at things through this paradigm and not just through power politics or economics or history or whatever, if you look at things through this lens, suddenly a very great deal starts to make sense. You see the corruption, you see the trail of evil that leads up to the present time, starting with the creation of modern Ukraine, like I said, in the 1920s, uh, going through the Holodomor, or the Golodomor, I should say, going through to this, um, the seeding of um, Crimea by a Ukrainian, by Khrushchev, in 1954, by special degree of the Presidium, going through the actions of Brezhnev, another Ukrainian, going through all the way to the modern day, where... Ukraine has just been ruled by corrupt leader after corrupt leader after corrupt leader. Um, and you see this kind of split of sentiment and ideology along ethnic lines. Because again, Ukraine is not a natural creation. It's an artificial one. It is a corrupt creation and has always been a corrupt creation. I mean, I'm not, I'm not slamming the Ukrainian people here. Please understand. I'm not, anything I'm saying, I have enormous sympathy for the Ukrainian people. They, the, the great tragedy of the Ukrainian people is that they are unwitting, uh, involuntary pawns in great power games. And it's just, it's horrible. I mean, they're going through hell and for what? Because their leaders are evil because their their culture is is so messed up from decades and decades of abuse of of human suffering piled on human suffering you know it's not okay that millions and millions of ukrainians are suffering like this it's just not okay and yet it couldn't be otherwise i'm sorry to say this i i'm, I'm really i wish i didn't have to say that but it could not be otherwise because of the influence and the pervasive uh, corruption introduced into these countries by the devil and his minions. If you look at how that evil manifests itself today, all you have to do, all you have to do, 
is look at the viciousness and hatred directed towards Russians. Go back to what I said earlier about how lies have to be stacked on top of lies like Jenga blocks and just pull one out and the whole thing collapses at some point, which is why evil has to defend itself so vigorously. Look at the lies that are being spewed by the empire of lies on every front. The Bucha massacre is uh, the, the latest topic in the news. You know, that Basically, apparently the Russians massacred dozens or hundreds of civilians as they pulled out of a town called Bucha, which is uh, a little, it's actually a suburb of Kiev. Um, because essentially the, the Russians got the order to withdraw all of their forces, more or less, from around Kiev and redeployed them through Belarus and then back down south through the Izum corridor down towards Donbass, where they have a massive force right now. I mean, genuinely massive of like 60 plus thousand men and weapons and gear and tanks and whatever, you know, ready to basically bomb the hell out of the joint force operations of the Ukrainian armed forces in that Donbass region. This is their last stand. There are about 60 to 80,000 Ukrainian soldiers trapped in a pocket from which they cannot escape. And I'm sorry to say, I mean, unless they surrender, they're all going to die. Uh, they're all going to die. Um, as of this podcast, they haven't started the final assault yet, but it's only a matter of time. And that... Uh, the, the lies being spread right now are designed to somehow deflect attention away from the fact that Ukraine is losing. Banderistan is losing this war horribly. They have nothing left to fight with, basically. Their army in Mariupol is gone. It's, it's essentially been destroyed. Um, the 501st Marine Battalion surrendered yesterday. About 260, uh, yeah, 267 men surrendered, and apparently they'd run up plus 50% or 50% plus casualties, dead and wounded. Uh, at that point, I mean, if you run into like 20 plus percent casualties, your morale really begins to suffer as a, as a combat unit. 50 plus percent casualties, you're no longer really combat effective at that point. And once you get to the 80 plus percent point, that's it. Your unit might as well be taken off the, the battlefield. It can't do anything effectively. So... That unit is is gone, and that's the last like major, really combat capable force. I mean, these are hard asses. These are you know they're they're they're, they're marines, amphibious assault troops. This is not a joke. These are not pushovers, and no one should doubt the bravery and the skill and the tenacity and courage of the Ukrainian man fighting for his country. The only problem is he doesn't really know what country he's fighting for because, like I said, Banderistan is a made up country. So you have this situation where the Western powers are just heaping lies and, and scorn and hatred upon Russia. Look at what Russia did and look at what Russia has done throughout the conduct of this war. Every time they've said something, basically, if you really think about it, every time the Russians have said something, they've pretty much been proven right. Pretty much. The only real lie that I can see on the Russian side was when they said, we're not using any conscripts in this war, we're only using professional troops. That is a lie. And they admitted as much, actually. The Russians were like, oh shit, we actually are using some conscripts. Um, we're going to go find out why this happened. We've taken casualties among our conscripts. We're not using conscripts anymore. They, look, they're using conscripts. We know they are. It's just, Let's just leave that aside. That's the only real major lie that I've been able to find out of all of the, the stuff that's been going on. Um, 
every single time the Ukrainians have said something has been proven false. Like within 24 to 48 hours, it's been proven flatly false. And every time the Russians have said something or made a claim or stated something outright, evidence comes along very quickly to support them. So they're the ones telling the truth and the Ukrainians and the Westerners are the ones telling the lies. Why are they lying so much? Because they know damn well that they're losing the physical war. But again, remember, this is a mirror of a war in spirit. And the war in spirit is always about lies trying to overcome truth. It, they can't do it, but lies travel much faster than truth. The truth is a slow and steady battering ram. Lies are like arrows or artillery shells that cut down lots of men, but the battering ram has tremendous force and tremendous weight behind it, and inevitably it will break through. It just takes a long time. Whereas the rockets or artillery shells or arrows or whatever have you of lies take out lots of people very quickly. And I think that's the best analogy I can come up with. If you look at the rumors surrounding the Bucha massacre, it's very clear that something very strange is going on. The Russian troops left Bucha on the 30th of March. The mayor of Bucha, like I said, small town, celebrated, you know, filmed himself saying, this is amazing. The, the, the Ukrainians basically reoccupied the town by April 1st. He's like, he filmed himself on his mobile phone saying, the Russian pigs are gone. We've defeated them. This is amazing. It's a great victory for us as Ukrainians. So on and so forth. No mention whatsoever of dead bodies. April 2nd comes around. No mention whatsoever of dead bodies. But a video surfaces, which was quickly deleted, of an Azovite walking around with his partner going, okay, who, who are we allowed to shoot? Are we allowed to shoot people with white armbands? The other guy says, yep, that's exactly who we're supposed to shoot. Lo and behold, on April 4th, we see video evidence emerging of civilians shot dead in the street, left there to lie, you know, in, in the road, supposedly killed by Russian soldiers as they evacuated. Wait a second, why didn't anybody mention that 48 hours before? Because the Ukrainians were in charge 48 hours before. Why is it that all this outrage is being heaped on this one incident when we know that the Ukrainians themselves are responsible for so much atrocity and brutality against their own people in places like Mariupol and Militopol and Kharkov and throughout the Donbass region? Why are we getting so exercised about this? Because it's a lie. It's outright a lie. The Russians immediately and aggressively pushed to have an independent investigator come in they wanted a UN Security Council meeting to push for an, uh, a completely impartial investigator to come in and research the facts on the ground. The Russians posted up a point-by-point -point refutation of the entire narrative and said, nope, this cannot be true. Here's why. Point, 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 point. Look at the, the, the video evidence that's out there. Look at the satellite data that's out there. Look at the statements of the mayor. Look at the, the statements of politicians on the ground who admit that there was like a push from upstairs to... To, to, to kill Russian sympathizers. Look at the fact that people are wearing white armbands. Why are they wearing white armbands? Because that's a way for Russian troops to be able to identify civilians. And they asked, they did not demand, they asked people in Bucha to wear white armbands to show that they meant no harm. And that if they had white armbands, they could easily come over and collect supplies, humanitarian aid from the Russians. No problem. They could take that and go off and go about their business 
The Russians did nothing whatsoever to stop mobile telecommunications within Bucha. So anyone with a cell phone could walk around, take video, take pictures, upload it to the internet. No evidence whatsoever up until April 4th of any kind of massacre. The Russians were right about this. The actual data on the ground proves this. And yet, you would think that the United States and the United Kingdom, which are supposed to be all about rules-based world order and holding tyrants accountable and so on, would want an independent, free, fair, impartial investigation on the ground telling people what actually happened, they nixed the idea. They said, no, we don't want that. We've got, essentially, what they were saying is, we've got a narrative and we're sticking to it. The hatred of Russia is amazing. And it is entirely without precedent. We've never seen anything like this before. Russians are being canceled left and right. They're being told you're evil, you're disgusting, because you're just, you're, you're Russian. There is a deep hatred of Russia embedded within the Western psyche. And it's not just within the West either. There is a large contingent of secular Jews that have a deep hatred of Russia as well. We call them neo-clowns or neoconservatives. Most of them come from the Jews who fled Russian pogroms in the early, uh, in the early 20th century, late 19th, late 19th, early 20th century. They fled and went to um, the United States, the United Kingdom, much of Europe, and that hatred of Russia has stayed ever since. Now, here's the funny thing. Most of those Jews are actually socialists. Really. They have strong socialist beliefs. They believe in things like uh, you know, state ownership of, of property. They believe in, in things like worldwide revolution. They're Trotskyites. They really are. They're, they're unreconstructed Trotskyites. They are children of great lies. And because they are children of great lies, they can only operate by spreading lies. I mean, if you look at Victoria Newland. That's a great example. Uh, Gonzalo Lira did a fantastic live stream a couple of, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, actually, by now, where he just took apart Victoria Newland's entire career. And he pointed out that her grandfather fled from Bessarabia, which is essentially kind of where Moldova is right now. Uh, that, that sort of coastal area right at the southern tip of Ukraine up through Moldova. That's, that's kind of Bessarabia. And if you look at the old flag of Bessarabia, it's actually essentially the Russian flag. Seriously, it's essentially the modern Russian flag. And her grandfather fled to the United States, tried to make a life for himself, didn't succeed, and inflicted his neuroses and anger and hatred of Russia and Russians on his son, who suffered from severe depression and suicidal tendencies throughout much of his life. And all of that trickled down into Victoria Newland, Jew, secular type, married to another Jew, well-known within neoconservative circles. Victoria Newland speaks Russian, is fluent in Russian. She's a, a damn sight better at speaking Russian than I am. She has everything possible to understand Russian culture and people, and she hates Russia. She hates the Russian people. She hates the Russian government. Why would you hate the Russian government? I mean, if you look at, if you truly look at, at Putin's government, he's not the bloodthirsty power mad tyrant everyone thinks he is, or at least the West thinks he is. People in Russia can go about their business freely as long as they don't criticize the government too much. I mean, you can criticize the government. Seriously. 
I know people who will openly say Putin is a pig and a tyrant and a dictator and a thief and a terrible, terrible person. Do you honestly believe that if the FSB wanted to, it couldn't pick up their conversations on their mobile phones? Like, really? Really? I mean, if the NSA can do it with your emails, you think the Russians can't do it with their mobile phones? Especially given the fact that all of the telecom servers uh, have to have the data for Russian citizens stored on Russian servers? Like, really? And yet, they are unmolested. The FSB doesn't go around arresting people in broad daylight the way the KGB used to. You can live a free life in Russia. I know. I was there. You don't have to live in fear of, of uh, totalitarians and tyrants coming to get you. Whereas you kind of do in the United States. Now, I mean, seriously. Uh, you'll, see it, you'll see the same sentiment addressed in the late, thoroughly unmourned Madeleine Albright, May She Burn in Hell. Because she was at a book signing in uh, Serbia, you know, um, years after the the bombing of Belgrade, and there's a clip of it on YouTube. You can go look it up. It's uh, it's quite startling, actually. A bunch of Serbs showed up at a book signing that she was doing, really angry. I mean, that she was there. They they weren't getting violent or anything, but they, they weren't pushing around people. They were just re- they just they wanted her to get out, and you know, you can kind of understand it. I mean. This is a woman who bombed the shit out of Serbia. And her actions, her, her policies, resulted in the deaths of thousands upon thousands of Serbs. Why wouldn't they be angry that she's there, right? And you can actually see her say, disgusting Serbs. She's so angry that they're there protesting her presence. These are manifestations of the lies. And they are manifestations of the spirit realm. What you're seeing right now, and I want to close with this, is some great war in heaven, or between heaven and hell, really. It is the latest phase of a great war, and it is influencing us directly. It is the the latest phase in the long war, I should say. And the powers and the movements that you're seeing on earth of a resurgent nationalist, largely Christian, Russia, and a resurgent nationalist pagan, China, against a post-Christian, clearly satanically led empire of lies in the West, is a reflection of much greater forces than we can understand moving in the spirit realm. There is clearly something going on where God is directing his forces the forces of light, the forces of truth, against these vast forces of evil and darkness, which seek to overwhelm the light through lies and deception and corruption. And this is especially important for us as Christians to understand as we come into um, Easter, as we come up to Good Friday and we come up to uh, Resurrection Sunday. It's important for us to understand the nature of this evil. And it is evil. I mean, it's genuinely deep evil. It is trying to overwhelm us by destroying our morale. That's the true focus of these lies. The physical realm is not something they can stand up against. Because look at what's happening in Bandaristan right now. The Russians are beating the shit out of the Ukrainians. I mean, the Ukrainians don't have a military left, okay? disregard anything that you're seeing of the Czechs sending over 40 
T-80, you know, Soviet-era tanks refurbished to modern standards, blah, 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 blah. Look, <laughs> you can send a thousand tanks. If you don't have diesel fuel for them, you don't have the capacity to transport diesel fuel for them, you don't have enough rounds for them, you don't have men trained on them, you don't have uh, a command and control structure capable of directing them, doesn't matter how many damn tanks you have. They're all going to get slaughtered in open battle. That's just what's going to happen. You can't tell me that supplying all these tanks is going to make the slightest bit of difference because it's not. They're just going to get bombed to shit. The moment that the Russians spot them coming into Ukraine, all they need to do is launch some caliber cruise missiles and a couple of uh, Kinjals fired over the Black Sea from a MiG-31K straight into the staging area where all those vehicles have to be kept because they have to be kept somewhere. And then all they have to do is send cruise missile strikes against the rail lines that link all of these uh, western areas to the eastern ones. And that's it. Those tanks are stuck. If you don't have the logistics and the capability to transport things, you don't have an army. It's that simple. The Russians are kicking ass in Ukraine. They really are. So the only realm left for the Ukrainians is lies. This whole war is a series of lies stacked up one on top of another. And the Russians are bulldozing straight through them. They're, they're not just taking away those Jenga blocks one at a time. They're just looking to knock over the entire tower. And because of the effectiveness of that campaign, the mirror war that we're seeing is intensifying. And it's going to get worse, actually, over the coming days and weeks. Mark my words. Bucha was just the beginning. There will be more and more attempts to make the Russians out to be these evil genocidal monsters in the coming days. And it's going to get much worse before it gets any better. We are likely to see a false flag chemical weapons operation. Uh, there was actually, there was already an attempt at doing one, a pretty inept one, actually. Uh, the Ukrainians blew up a chemical tank as they were evacuating from, retreating really from um, an LNR town in, in Lugansk. And uh, they blew up this, this tank, which spread like caustic salts or something through the air. And they waited until the wind was just blowing in the right direction. They blew it up and this cloud of nasty stuff started floating towards uh, the LNR lines. And the LNR was like, oh, shit, we've got a bit, of, a bit of a problem. But, you know, the Russians captured it very quickly. They were like, OK, this is what the Yukis did. Here's what they did. Any attempt to blame the Russians for it fell flat instantly, which was hilarious. But this is what we're up against. So my advice to you is to remember this war is waged in spirit first and in the real world second. The way to fight it is to get out your Bible, to reflect on the nature of this war. And you'll see uh, this reflected in specific passages. You know, uh, we fight not with uh, enemies of flesh and blood, but with uh, of, of those in spirit. I am butchering the scriptures, but you know the ones I mean. Um, put on the whole armor of God, be thankful for your tests, understand that the devil roams around roaring like a lion, seeking to devour whom he might, etc., etc. It's all there. Every weapon you need to fight this evil war, this evil pervasive cloud of doubt and hatred is there in your Bible. Go read it, pray, focus your mind on the fight to come, and do not give in to despair. I need that advice as much as anyone, believe me, especially these days. So do not despair. Pick up your sword. 
metaphorically, spiritually speaking, and get in the fight because you've got nothing to lose. We are out of time, so I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I know people wait with bated breath, or at least one person does, you know, on the Podbean app. This has been Didactic Mind, episode 98, The Mirror War, and I am Didact, signing off.